everyone and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Mic, a vent music podcast series hosted by me, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with artists across different music scenes in the UK and beyond. We talk all about their musical journeys, their artistry, and most importantly, the person behind the mic. A good while ago now, during the COVID lockdowns, I interviewed Pete, who is the frontman for band Beach for Tiger and bassist for Rayowa. Pete also played bass at Just Checking In Live 3 with previous guests Isla Rico. In this episode of Behind the Mic, I'm checking back in with Beach for Tiger and talking to Pete's older brother Mick, who plays drums in the band, as well as bongos in Rayowa. We already covered the genesis of BFT, so we won't be covering it in as much depth in this episode, but we will discuss Mick's role in both bands, how social media platforms like TikTok is starting to affect the songwriting process and how hits are made. Mick is also very self-aware to accept it has even affected BFT's own songwriting with its own pros and cons. For Mick's mental health, we discuss health anxiety and symptoms of OCD he experienced in early childhood. Growing up in a hyper-masculine part of Essex where any rebellion against male gender stereotypes was viewed with a little bit of mistrust and how him doing music played into that along with being exceptionally good at football. We discuss a certain pressure Mick felt as the oldest sibling in his family and the internal and external pressures he faced as a teenager and adult in being expected to deal with mental health hardships and challenges that came his way. Mick has a strong relationship with his dad and we discuss the evolving of that relationship that fathers and sons go through, him and his dad's mutual love of going to watch their football team Arsenal play and how his dad suffering an angina attack was a big wake up call for Mick for him to enjoy life more, try and worry less and value the close relationships he has in his life more too. We also discuss the danger of your mental health becoming your identity and how the pendulum has swung from zero understanding of mental health to one where self-diagnosis is happening more and more. We finish by talking about relationships, heartbreak and a life-threatening couple of experiences Mick had whilst travelling in Kathmandu in Nepal, where he lived through two separate earthquakes and almost died in one of them. So get yourself comfy and have a listen as I go back behind the mic with Mick from Beach for Tiger. Mick, welcome to Behind the Mic, mate. Thank you so much for coming on, coming over from Tottenham to come and see me in my flat in North East London. I've had a check-in with your brother. It's yeah. now time to check in with you. How are you, mate? Good, mate. Yeah, I'm really cosy. I've told you already, this is a really nice flat. So, yeah, really, this is lovely, lovely sofa I'm on. So, yeah, I'm excited to have That's a That's a cheap sofa, mate. I can't lie. So, I appreciate the compliment. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe my standards are too low for sofas. So, uh, yeah. There was a, a lot of really eye-opening things that you told me about when we spoke off air, mate. So, I'm really interested to talk about your journey and do this part two of mm. Beach with Tiger. So, without further delay, are you ready to start the show? Let's go. Let's have it, mate. Let's start behind the mic as we always do by talking about your music journey, Mick. So I ask all my special guests this question first. Tell me how your love affair music started. Who are some of the artists you listened to growing up? Inspirations? What impact did they have on your mental health? And what age were you when you first started playing instruments, producing or singing or any in between? Okay, so the music journey started when I saw School of Rock. Oh. Uh, 
Yeah, you know, big film. Oh yeah, School of Rock. I would have been nine at the time, twenty years ago. Blimey, (laughs) twenty years ago. Scary to think. Wow, yeah. I think I was nine years old, and it's the drum solo at the end when Freddie. Freddie, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's going through doing it. Jack Black's loving it, and I just saw that, and I turned to my dad. I remember my dad used to do that thing where he'd watch the TV from like the door of the living room, like so we'd be mucking around watching TV or whatever, and he'd be leaning on the door frame. I just turned around to my dad and was like, Dad, I, would, I think I want uh, drums. I want to do drums. And he was like, okay, cool. And so I remember seeing in his eyes, half, bloody hell, we've got to get a drum kit. Okay. <laughs> bloody hell, we've got to get a in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> and then half, he was and still is such, uh, he has an incredible music taste. And we'll go into that later. I got so much of my music taste through him. And there was an excitement there as well. And then that's how it started. My, my brother, who you've already spoken to, mm-hmm. Two years younger, he uh, started learning guitar as well. He saw his older, well, well, I think he saw his older brother learning drums. He was like, I want to do something as well. And then he became bloody good at doing that mm. something. So yeah, that's how the music started. And then had lessons for a few years. I remember the first, after about maybe six months, maybe a bit longer playing drums, I had this amazing teacher called Glenn Burton. It was at Music Academy in Billericay behind the Waitrose car park which is as, as bitter as you can get that sentence. <laughs> that was a sentence. <laughs> That's a bitter sentence right there. Behind the, the weed throughs at Car Park. Yeah. And yeah, there was this guy called Glenn, and the first song I ever learned to drum was Summer of 69. And it's just a really simple, straight groove. And it's the first time I learned how to do that. And I remember that song blaring out the PA in his room. And I was like, this is what I want to mm. do. This is so awesome. There's always that stereotype or adage that all drummers are a little bit mad. So what attracted you to being a drummer then when you saw Freddie and you saw, I guess, Dave Grohl and people like that who are mm. really important in, in, in making drumming perhaps more of a mainstream attraction to mm. wannabe musicians than perhaps lead guitar or being the solo artist and the singer was? Do you know what? I think... Growing up, I see a correlation between the type of drummer I like and my age, right? When I was growing up, first getting into it, I'd be like, I want rock drumming. I want mm. Dave Grohl. I want Chad Smith from the Chilis. They were the two bands. They were yeah. the two bands that me and my friends grew up with. And I just want a big, hard-hitting drummer. That's what people associate drumming with, stereotypically, don't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And now, these days, I've noticed my taste. I love really soft, dynamic playing, like jazz and stuff like that. And I don't know, I'm just putting two and two together and chewing. <laughs> As I get older, I love softer, more delicate grooves, little ghost notes here and there. It was rock, and then now it's into jazz, and then, I mean, disco as well. Amazing. Yeah. I want to talk about your early music career, if we can, because you played football to a decent level when you were younger. Mm. And I think when it comes to that hyper-masculine scoring run, we're about the same age or around mm. the same age. What helped you survive and thrive in school when you were doing music and football? Was it having both of them? Was it having football where people couldn't sort of have a go at you because you were good at football? Like, how did you manage to square the two whilst enjoying yourself and having fun? Because let's face it, you know, any sort of male moving away from gender non-conformity was either you're gay or it was just homophobic or people got onto you basically, essentially. Mm. I remember like... People used to have a go at boys because they liked female lyrics in like a song or something. Like it was just stupid stuff. Yeah, I think I have very different friends for those sorts of things, mm. and I sort of just floated in between the two. Like I absolutely loved football growing up as well. Like you said, my two loves were football and music growing up, and I loved it. And it just so happened, I think it probably helped that I wasn't too bad at it as well. And Definitely I, helped. I, <laughs> I can say for sure. So so yeah, I don't take that for granted. It really did help. I mean, I was lucky enough to be. Picks as like the captain of the school team for a few years and stuff. So I think being 14, 15 years old 
in that social That's circle. That's a lot of social status, mate, being the captain of the school football team. Yeah, yeah so yeah. I, I think looking back on it, yeah, looking back and reflecting on it now, it probably gave me a sort of social capital in that setting, definitely, because people would give you shit left, right and centre anyway. But I think because, lucky enough, by, I had a respect with the, with the coach and he wanted me to be the captain. In those circles, it gave me a bit of social capital, which meant not that people wouldn't, cross me or stuff but I was like I had a say in who was being in the team and stuff not I was an ear that the coach came to and then I went and did my music separately with completely different people Mm. and it was like look I'll come here play football and we'll try and win games and then I very much wouldn't socialise them too much just go and do my other thing okay and that was put in both worlds really nicely yeah Yeah, fast forward a bit Uh, I remember I was on a I'll never go on one of these again I was on this football tour in (laughs) Barcelona when I how I would I would, I would have been 20 or 21, 20 or 21, um, in Barcelona. And I'm 21 by this point, so the music's doing some more bits mm-hmm. here. I hadn't started Beach for Tiger by that time, actually. But people knew that I took music more seriously. I was playing in bands as much as I could than that. We were in a pub or whatever, and this guy, who happened to not be very good as well, he was, he'd never used to play much, and he and he, he stood up. We was doing this thing where it was like, a, I think they called it a courtroom or something, where people like, dish out fines. Dish stuff out, like that. yeah, yeah, of course. Dish out, yeah. whatever. And this guy was like, oh, Mike, I want to ask a question to Mike. What do you have against lag culture? And I was like, I'm here to play football, mate. I can't be bothered with your bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, because... For me, I was like, do you know how uncool that is that you just asked me that? So I, I've always That's just... That's a try-hard question, isn't it? Yeah, really, I'm like, okay, it? mate, cool. Trying to call you out, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I just, I love playing football, but obviously a lot of the stuff... I mean, so there's this writer and philosopher called Albert Camus. I don't know if you're aware, aware of him. A Jurian philosopher who I've read loads of growing up. And maybe he inspired me a lot because he was an incredible goalkeeper, played for the Algerian national team. But he spent all this time writing, being a romantic, being a that's philosopher. That's a classic, Alger- that's a classic <laughs> Algerian footballer. Yeah. I mean, Riyad Mahrez is probably a little bit... Yeah. <laughs> a bit more flamboyant now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I just loved the game and the intensity of those 90 minutes. And then I'll just go off and do other things, really. Mm. How hard was the decision to give up playing football competitively and just concentrate on music? Do you know what? Initially, the, the first thing that made me stop football, playing football to a really good standard was for school. Because I was I was playing for Chompsford City mm-hmm. and they incredible team. The team that was there was amazing, so so good. And it got to the end of the season when I was fifteen, and there was a chance over the summer if I passed a new round of trials that we would have started to have got paid like I think like a hundred pound a week mm-hmm. or something. Which I was like fifteen. I was like, that's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. I was like a hundred pound a week. Okay, I was like, okay, cool. But I really thought about it, and this was when I'd finished high school and it was going into sixth form college mm-hmm. and stuff and I remember speaking to my to my mum and dad about it and my dad is so he was so supportive of me playing football as much as I could but even he was like think about because it, it was a commitment it was three times a week minimum yep. like all over south of England it it's semi-pro like, but it doesn't really feel like semi-pro isn't it when you've got that commitment and you're going all around the country and stuff like that yeah those and, leagues. yeah yeah, yeah and I, I still couldn't drive at that point for another year I knew I would have had to have been dependent on one of my parents who was still both still working to try and ship me around the place. And I thought, do you know what? I'm going to just go. It just felt right to, I'm going to go and play a local team with friends, try and do well in school, really. And mm. that was the initial reason. And then music, along with that, started to be- become more and more of the primary love, mm. really. Because my brother started to grow up, he started to get really good, and we grew together, basically. Yeah. So. You spoke there about growing up with your brother and playing music, and you were in a band with previous guests, Droz, and mm. listeners can go back and 
hear about this infamous battle of the bands that you did with him as a band together and he was anxious about how it would go but speaking to you when we spoke off air you were anxious about even being able to play because you had this injury so tell me about that yeah so uh, it was like the day before or two days it was a couple of days before i can't remember exactly when i was playing i was training on one of those sandy astroturf surface and snapped an ankle ligament so i had to do this thing where obviously being a drummer it was on my left foot so i just had to tie the hi-hat down so i had to play without being able to open the hi-hat up that is constricted (laughs) yeah i was i I couldn't keep the the groove rolling on the left foot but i was just happy to be there i mean it was the first thing we ever did but i don't think i was actually nervous i was just excited to be there because for a first gig it was amazing and your school's your world isn't it yeah Yeah, it was at our point yeah we were like for us we were were big fish in a small pond if you will like it was really like American movie-esque. It was, there was a, <laughs> one band from each school in like Basildon District or something. Mm. And it was at the Towngate Theatre in Basildon. And the place was rammed. And I couldn't believe That's it. a I mean, lot of clout and social capital <laughs> risk there yeah. if it goes and wrong, mate. Honestly, from that point, maybe it was too good a starting point. Because after that, we played some dead shows to no one, a man and his dog. Like, we, we, we did that stuff. So that first show where it was like three tiers of people. And we were like, oh my God, this is nuts. <laughs> So yeah, and we—I can't remember what songs we did. We did a, a few covers, and maybe we might have even done some originals there. I'd have to talk with Jaws and see if he remembers what we played. Mm. <laughs> Let's fast forward to university now, because mm. you wanted to pursue a music degree and crack on with it, basically ASAP. However, your parents encouraged you to do an academic degree and keep that option open, essentially mm. for you. So how did that go? And and were you a bit maybe annoyed or irritated at the time that they pursued that, or do you look back on it and say actually that was a really important decision for them to make? I think they were absolutely right. <laughs> so 17, 18, 18 year old me was like, no, mom, I want to rock out. Come on. <laughs> I remember be the April, I think around the April of my first year of university, wanting to drop out and go, I don't want to, even though I was enjoying it, I was thinking, this isn't what I want to do. I want to be playing music all the time. But then I think I just tried to grow up a bit, tried to manage my time better and realised that I could do both. There wasn't any reason that I couldn't do both at the same time. And I really liked it. I think maybe because through school, I had that separation with football and music. Now I was like, look, education, music, I can do both. You know, one doesn't need to cancel the other one out. I can do it. And I was down in Southampton and my brother was coming down like once a month, once every two months and we were just doing stuff anyway. So... It was fine, and like the way that life's end up turning out, yeah, I'm in a job that I really like. I wouldn't have been able to do that if I didn't continue uh, doing the, doing education. You also did a masters, I believe, in politics after graduating. Is that correct? Yeah, I did. So I did uh, undergraduate till I was twenty one, and then took some time off, worked in the spoons to save up to do some traveling, travel around the uh, around the world a bit, and then did other hospitality jobs. And yeah, then I was like, right. I've had enough of hospitality. I just Googled exactly what I liked reading about. I went environmental politics. And it <laughs> so, it so happened that there was a master's programme at Birkbeck, part of the University of London. What I really liked about it is that it's a university designed for working people. To Part-time, study yeah. You have a lot of night courses yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. So it's like 6pm. All the classes are 6pm onwards. So I did that and then that was in... 2018. Mm. Started, so yeah. You spoke there about travelling and you ended up going to Australia and lived there for a period. So how did this period of your life influence the beach for Tiger Sound that it is today? You know, I'm thinking about Byron Bay, perhaps, if you were there, and Parcels and all those sort of bands. Did you mm. take inspiration? Obviously, they weren't around, perhaps, when you started out. So what did you take from Australia from a personal perspective and from a music perspective? 
music perspective, I discovered Tame Impala there. <laughs> so this was in 2013. Their album Lonerism had come out in 2012. So funny enough, I did a student exchange in Australia. So I was there for a semester in my second year. So I turned 20 when I was out there. And Tame Impala were, were becoming the next big thing when I went out there. And just, it was psych rock. And that was basically, I came back and I was like to my brother, I went, Pete, we need to listen to this band because we need to try and do this. <laughs> and I think, I can't imagine how many people had that same reaction. To yeah. When you look at how music's gone, Tame Impala will be seen in, in history as a, as a watershed moment, I think, yeah, in how sure. the influence and the re-emergence of psychedelia in pop music, I think, mm. anyway. Pete has touched on this quite a lot, but tell me how you personally got involved with Rayowa, who you play in now, mm. and how you've built this momentum you now have with Friends of the Pod, Dan, Reese, and Luke, and the rest of the band. So I want to ask you, whisper it quietly, but is something something happening here? Momentum? Momentum's happening. Yeah, I mean, so... You're doing a lot right now, mate. Yeah, it, you know what? It's so much fun. Like, the summer we just had was, was the sort of thing that... I, I was at your last gig. You were. You yes, were, sir. you were. I'll be at your next one as well. Oh, <laughs> Chats Palace, December 1st, if this comes out. Plug by it, then. plug it. It'll be out soon. It's probably <laughs> yeah. out soon, so we can definitely plug it. <laughs> yeah, the summer we had was amazing. The, the energy at the shows is just awesome. That show that you were at was on uh, Outdoors at London Bridge as well. And that was a particularly unique show because they felt like there was a family vibe to it there was mm. kids and stuff there and mm. obviously when we do shows it's normally 18 plus so having like kids and stuff like, that was a really wonderful I was a trigger for everyone dancing by the way Reese called me up I was the only one dancing you were right was. at the start you were there for and the that's not one. easy because that, that <laughs> stage was a coliseum so that everyone is looking at you behind you <laughs> you're very self conscious but you were instrumental Thank literally you, in getting that vibe going so yeah to the start of Raya I, can't, I couldn't tell what Pete said I need to re-listen to his podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so we've known Reese and Dan in particular since we were really young. So the first bands we were in, we were playing at Piruki Football Club, like these school bands, not, not really school bands, but just local gig yeah. nights. And we were just more or less the only people doing a band really that I, I was ever aware of at our school. And Reese had a band called Raquel's and then Dan had the first iteration of Quartz at yep. the time. And they were, so they were in separate bands. That's how I discovered Dan and, and Luke and Reese, yeah, from, from Courts. Yeah, and, then yeah. I, and then it was just before, I actually discovered them just before they split up. So I was like, I started getting to them. I was like, and then they were like, oh, we're splitting up. I was like, oh, for God's sake. Man. And then they started rowing. Here we are. Mate, I, I will say that Courts, they were an outrageous band. I used to love going to court shows. So honestly, it was so cool because me and Pete and friends used to love going to court shows. And then just because we knew them sort of, at that point, so we were about 14, 15 when we were like doing shows with them. And then mm. I wouldn't have seen them at a show again until I was about 23, 24. So there was a big gap. But we sort of, just through social media, we sort of had each other on social media. So we kept in touch a little bit, not mm. too much. And then maybe towards, I don't know, what, how, what was it that brought us together again? I think me and Pete were sessioning for another act and we opened up for a few court shows. That was it. And that reignited the relationship and, and built that into a friendship for the I'd say that was the first time it was a friendship when we were teenagers we just did the yeah. gigs together but it been proper came into a friendship when we started playing shows together in our early 20s and yeah love courts and from the court, listeners it was like Jamie T disco wasn't it courts oh, it was but really like good. yeah oh, so good. So, it was so good it was like yeah grime indie for yeah. the whole family yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
And like they, just Jack, like if an equivalent, I would yeah. say just like early just Jack days is like that sort of rap meets disco meets indie. Yeah. That's the kind of sound it was putting out. Wasn't it was it? so good. It was festival ready. Yeah. And luckily for us, that energy, that festival ready energy has come over into Rara as well. It's, it's, yeah, it's been so much fun so far. And what were we going to say? How, yeah, so I remember after one of the gigs we played with them, we went, oh, Joe, let's go to let's go to the pub and have a drink and stuff. And it was with Dan. Reese, me and Pete, I think Luke as well. And we just had a merry old time at the pub. And Reese went, Boys, I've been writing some music. Do you want to come to the studio and hear it? We went, All right, yeah. I think, I can't, I think Courts was sort of on the way out, or I don't know if they'd announced that they were done yet. I think they were on sort of starting to fizzle down. And we went to the studio, Reese showed us some music, and we were like, Mate, this is outrageous. And then they were like, Oh, well, we're thinking of you know, starting a new thing and all mm. that. And we were like, Well, Obviously, yeah, let's 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 get it going. And then we talked about how we want to be involved, other people we want to bring in. Yeah, and that's there's a lot of you. That's what I describe to people. There's a bloody lot of you. Yeah. So the, <laughs> nine piece, I think, is what I counted correctly. Yeah, it's a nine. So the, the family tree. It's, you've got Reese, Dan, and Luke. Obviously, three vocals along the front, and then Reese does a lot of songwriting with Darnell, who's one of the backing vocalists. Well, not isn't he? He's one of the vocalists. Mm. He's outrageously. He's been in the game for a long time. And then you've got Jasmine, who's Again, another outrageous voice. Who's friends with Nico, the drummer? Yep. And Nico was the last drummer for Quartz. And then you've got Pete on bass, me on percussion, and then Dave, our friend Dave, who's dr- trumpet player in Beach Tiger, comes in. I think of oh, that's everyone. I, can't I think that's everyone. Oh. Yeah, that's everyone I've met. <laughs> that's everyone I've met. Uh, yeah, so yeah, far. I think that's everyone. Yeah. And yeah, it's just so much fun. I want to talk about live performance now in Beach for Tiger because I've mm. talked about it with Pete, but I want to talk about it with you. So, tell me about. From your experience, your first Beach for Tiger set, how did it go and that mental process that you do to get ready for a gig? The first one we did was at Chinneries and Southend supporting Youth Club. Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah I've heard of Youth yeah, Club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Youth Club, yeah. A bit older now. <laughs> yeah, a little bit older. Do you know what? That's, yeah. the, that's the pitfalls of calling yourself youth in your name. Yeah, I know. <laughs> do you know what? Our first show after COVID with Beach was supporting Youth Club at their 10-year anniversary show. Wow. So that shows how time's gone on. Mm. Uh, yeah, so we were we were supporting them at Chinneries, our first show, because they were really support, supportive. Because Pete plays bass for Youth Club, mm-hmm. and we know the drummer Reese. He runs the sickest studio in Southend called SS2. So him and especially Joe Joe White, the guitarist, given us loads of support over the years. And that they obviously knew Pete. He was in their band, and Pete's like, oh, "I've got this new project," and they went, "Come and be main support." And I'm trying to think, how I was at the time probably nervous because this was the launch of something much more serious than that other stuff. So this was the first time I was getting more serious about shows. And I think it was, it was only a six song set or something. And I think we were just happy to get through it more like get minutes under the belt, basically uh, to put it in football terms. And yeah, nowadays my process for getting ready for gigs is we'll rehearse twice in the week before. And I think just because we've been gigging now for years, for four, 14 years ago was my first show. I think just, Get used to it. I think with yeah, muscle memory, muscle exactly muscle memory, and yeah. we're so, we're well rehearsing these days. It's rehearsals. And, and the thing I can probably give is you know one of the best compliments you can give to a band is that you all enjoy playing together. And mm. I think with Roa that is absolutely true. Roa is so so. It's, yeah, Roa is just a party. It's just a a party. And, and it, you go hard after the gig. I'll tell you that for free. <laughs> <laughs> we like yeah, we like to celebrate after a show. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's, it's such a good time and. Do you know what with Rayo, we've been we was the whole time we've it's one of those things I've been bands where the shows have gone awfully and we just with this crew and this project 
that every gig we just go we're just waiting for a show to go bad and we, and we don't want to i'm saying it, i don't want to jinx it but we're like the touch wood <laughs> we wait for a show to go bad but then everyone it's just i don't it's testament to the effort that we're putting into mm. it and the hard work the rehearsals are hard well um, yeah. you mentioned bad sets and mistakes that haven't happened just yet on Rayowa, but has there been a bad set? Because what I like to do with my guests and for my listeners, more importantly, mm. is talk about mistakes so how we can learn from them. Mm. So, is there a particular example that you remember and what you learned from it? Main lesson I would ever give to anyone is maybe as a drummer, is just don't stop playing, just carry on. Whatever happens, it's always like, mist- like making a mistake on riding a bike, isn't it? You make a little mistake, you're like, just keep going, just and get- as long as you don't crash, you'll be yeah, fine. Yeah, just yeah. get back on the yeah. bike and just keep going. So I can only really speak from a from a drumming perspective. Just keep the groove rolling because I think what a lot of people need to remember is outside the rhythm and the vocals, people don't necessarily listen to the detail unless you're a musician. Unless you've done right? gigs like me or you've hissed. Uh, yeah, <laughs> sometimes I, I, I hear mistakes now in gigs. I'm like, shut up, switch off, <laughs> yeah. switch off. But I think a lot of people, as long as the groove's going and the vocals stand strong... And they've got a bit of alcohol in them, they don't care. Yeah, if, a little, if someone clangs a wrong note on a synth or on a guitar... Obviously, you don't want that to happen, but don't lose sleep over it. It's fine. Keep the groove rolling. Keep the singer singing. That's my lesson. Mm. So, pressure on the singer and the drummer. <laughs> Conversely, then, what's the best show you've ever done for you in Beach with Tiger or Rayoa and what it's done for your mental health? I'd say, do you know what? Maybe because it's recent. The best Beach with Tiger one was the last show we did. We did a headline show at the Victoria in Dalston. Oh, that is where... Actually, do you know what? I'm not going to say it yet. I'll say that. Keep there listening is, to the There's some end. news coming about that. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah. It was our first headline show after COVID. And I'll be frank, I was sceptical and apprehensive about how it was going to go. I, I was like, right. Because it's about trying to build that momentum. Like, do you know what? Because online, Beach does, you know, we've got really good numbers on Spotify and everything like that. But that, in today's market, that doesn't tr- necessarily tra- at all translate. One single band can purchase is 50,000 streams or something stupid, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. You get paid in shillings. That's what Literally, I yeah, say yeah. to people. And that doesn't translate into heads in a room. And I remember within the band ourselves, we were split on, I mean, there were some of us who were like, okay, I'm not sure how this is going to go. And then mm. others like, maybe if it was blind faith or they were just confident, but they were right in the end. And I remember we finished a gig I went to the green room and I just like ran into a wall, like punched it with excitement because I couldn't actually believe that the room was packed and people were that up for a Beach for Tiger show. Just because after like two and a half years... Uh, you don't know, do you? You just don't know. Yeah, 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 I, yeah. I had no idea. I, we hadn't tested it or anything. We'd only mm. done a few support shows mm. to get back to sort of... What's, what's the, like a rudimentary level or like to the level you were you were perhaps when you started or yeah, yeah. before COVID sorry yeah, yeah. And, and we'd had a new lineup as well like we had a new bass player come in so with the band had grown new bass player we put Davey onto the simps and we put James onto the simps as well so it was a testing a whole new formation if you will as well and we've never done that and it was awesome mm-hmm. so in terms of for my mental health it was reassuring and wonderful excellent it was lovely and then for Rioa the best show I've seen you done is either that one at London Bridge or the one at Colours. Those are the best ones I've seen you. I've also seen you at Moth Club. Moth Club was a great show. Oh, that though. was our first one. That was your first one. Yeah. yeah. Do you know what? I think my favourite Rio show was any of the ones we've done at Hoot and Alley in Brixton. Do you know what? That is... Have you ever been to Hoot and Alley? Uh, I've not, but I've... Because you did it... It was like a club night you did it, wasn't it? So you came on at like 12 or 1 when yeah. everyone's absolutely seshed. 
Do you know what? It was because we're with Ryoa, a lot of the imagery we base sort of the brand on is on like Studio 54 yes. and all the old disco clubs. Mm. So the guys that Quentin and Max are the two bookers down there. And luckily for us, they love us and they're such good dudes and they've been so helpful. And one of the nights they run is called Disco Dynamite. Yep. And we've done two of them now. I can't wait to do a third one. I don't know when that's happening yet, but fingers crossed there will be a third TBC. one. TBC. Yeah. And it's just coming on. It's like we're, we're, the green room there is tiny and it's like six, seven hundred people in there. It's a it's wave. It's a big old venue. Yeah, Oh yeah, my yeah. God, it's a wave. And literally, I remember we'd be in the green room just looking out in the crowd and it's being like, fuck, oh my God, this is mad. Literally, it was like animals like ready in there. It, they're so ready. And we come on at one, you look down, it's literally... That's the peak scene. of most people's nights, isn't it? Yeah. One After o'clock. that, it's going downhill. Yeah, we, fin- <laughs> we finished by like one forty-five, just before 2. It's like prime time. And just look at, we're, we're all on stage, just like checking everything's working. And we're like, this is it. This is what it's all about. You can just about see to the back of the room. And it's just so hot in there as well. Mm. Like, I always take two spare tops because it is so hot in there. And that is just the raw energy. It's so good. They're the ones that I love. And then for a different reason, the one that you were at, the, the family vibe of that was lovely. Mm. But a, a, a real landmark was we played Cambridge Club Festival at Main Stage. Yes, I'm friends with the people who run it. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. I'm friends with Fraser. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was like Matt Matt because it was like Main Stage. You it, played before Chic, like on the same on yeah. the same stage lineup. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was Chic, like Diana Ross, brand new heavies. It was all the classics all that's bucket list sort of thing isn't it yeah, yeah that yeah. was more completely bucket list whereas Hootenanny is like we feel like these are the steps where yes. this is the steps that we need to take so mm. yeah a few options there before we move on to issues in the industry which outlet out of performing producing singing playing instruments has the biggest impact on your mental health and why the biggest influence playing because it's so much preparation and then when it pulls off, it's just a relief and it's wonderful. I think in terms of the most mentally stimulating, I'd say the initial writing phases of a song. Mm-hmm. That when, say, Reese sends me a first idea that he has for a song or when Pete comes to me and goes, this is a first idea of a song or when Droz comes to me and goes, what do you think of this loop? And then we go, okay, that's when I get excited to work on mm-hmm. it build from there really so yeah i want to talk about the issues in the music industry you wanted to discuss now mick so mm-hmm. the first one you wanted to talk about is social media and the influence of particularly tiktok in how it's i want to don't want to say skewed but perhaps influenced songwriting and how artists tend to generate fame now and generate social status and capital that they can use in the industry going forward so just unpack this for me and tell me about your perspective on it yeah, I mean, because from one side, I don't want to sound like an anorak and be like against the evolution yes. of technology in one way. But also, I think when we spoke about this before, we were talking about how when people write music for, for example, I mean, I don't even use TikTok, right? I just... Neither do I. I see the, I see the highlights on Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Um, well, I guess YouTube are doing it now with its shorts, basically. Yeah, to, Instagram to, with reels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So I guess where people are writing music to tailor it for this format, where it has to be catchy from the off first 15 seconds yeah yeah, yeah. I'm not against something being catchy from the off but I think it's just good we should be aware that that is shaping how a lot of music is being written like people aren't necessarily sitting down and listening to albums like 
I'm old school. I'm, I'm yeah. one of the few that does this. Sit, I'll sit down. I'll make time for when I'm like in a half an hour session. And I'll listen to an album front to back. Yeah. And I'll rate all of the songs five star, oh, four yeah. star, three star. Yeah. And I'm sad it? like that. No, no, no that's amazing. <laughs> We've just spoke about how you're literally a jukebox. <laughs> um, what, what's interesting as well is whilst this whole TikTok thing's taken over, on the other side, you also have the revival, if you if you will, of, of like vinyls, right? People are like, they're going, right, if I'm going to listen to an album, I'm going to listen to a vinyl. I'm going to get the crispest tone. I'm going to invest in it. I'm going to go proper. And it's not like people are listening necessarily. I mean, obviously people listen to albums. But for example, the way that Spotify goes, I don't really hear people going, oh, I'm just listening to an album on Spotify. Mm. It's playlists, right? Mm. It, they, they'll, they'll go for playlists. So it's more... On the one hand, we have TikTok where everything has to be really, really fast or we react and go, okay, vinyl, sit down for like 40 minutes and listen to it. And There's be... no in between now, is there? Yeah, yeah it's like... It's... So you have instant access or completely... Yeah. Or go, I'm going to put... Go, look, I'm just chilling with friends or by myself. Like, I'm going to... Got some red wine. Let's listen to this. It's quite antithetical to dance music if you think about it because dance music records, if they're not radio edits, which DJs normally tend to hate, it's a 40 second intro and a 40 second outro by and large. It's a five and a half minute song, five minutes minimum. So, like, when you think about it, TikTok is kind of antithetical to that structure. Yeah, I mean, like, for, I love the best. I mean, one of my bookmarks I've got on my laptop is the best 12 inches of all time. Mm. And That's it's... music, by the way, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking that. Just, just to save you there, Mitch. <laughs> I won't go into what else is on my bookmarks. <laughs> but, um, so, in this best 12 inches of all time. And it's just like these tunes are like anywhere from five and a half to 13, 14 mm. minutes. And yeah, that's just completely the opposite to, to TikTok, isn't it? So yeah. that's something. So when I say in terms of to relating that to the question, I'm being aware that a lot of people are putting their talent into making stuff that has to be instantly consumable, yeah. which I think maybe waters down taste to a little bit. But mm. that, that is obviously a contentious point. You said one really interesting to me off air and when we spoke and I agree with you in the sense that people are now almost famous before doing the things they want to do. Mm. So for example, Cara Delevingne has spoken openly about the fact that she did modelling to get into acting because she loved acting rather than the other way around. What impact do you think that has on artists' mental health and the wider industry, do you think? I imagine modelling is probably the trickiest one because in terms of mental health because it's obviously... It's, it's aesthetic in it's, its nature. It's yeah. more often than not a lot of younger girls. I mean, like it sounds like Cara Delevingne is obviously really pretty switched on. I mean, I literally don't. This is going off what you've just said. It sounds like she knew how it works, and she's like, right, I'll do this to get to the end goal. Yeah. Fair play. Like she's playing the system. She's played it well, and obviously killing it. So, mm. in terms of how does that for music? So, do you mean in terms of so like say how I can't remember the name of is it. Port, something porch who was a tiktoker who ended up doing music and she just became famous by doing like mimed videos of her face and then she now she's a bella porch and there we go okay yeah yeah so someone like her she got millions and millions of tiktok followers by miming to songs and then now as a music career so it's like how i think about it is are there now kids who are going am i gonna get famous on this in order to do music rather than do music in order to make it bigger and make it a success. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I remember I loved Bill Bailey growing up. And I remember he... That's a note on my running order as oh, well. Oh, so okay. You're taking that straight away, nicely. I remember he spoke about how... He was like, oh, when I was growing up... I mean, again, I'm trying to avoid sounding like, oh, in the olden days, in my day. <laughs> but obviously, 
we shouldn't just turn a, a blind eye to everything that's that's happened. You know, there is some good stuff in the past and mm-hmm. stuff like that. When Bill Bradley said, "Look, growing up, it was a scientist would be famous for being a scientist," whereas with reality TV, fame is, if you will, been it's been democratized, right? Mm-hmm. So anyone can be famous, whether you think that's a good thing or not. But I'm, now everyone can be famous. Everyone can be famous, right? Which I guess is good in a way because it gives more people more opportunity for social mobility to an extent, which is good. But also, I think it comes down to that probably watering down of the quality of stuff. Everything's Be- a hustle. Yeah, because yeah. There, and there's the sheer volume of stuff. There's going to be more shit stuff. Yep. I couldn't tell you if the average quality of music's gone up, but I guess going by law of averages, if more people are making music, then will more of it be good or more of it be bad? I'm not sure. So yeah, I have to do a lot more crate digging than I used to do to find the banger. Yeah, to be to be fair, you just yeah. put what I tried to say very succinctly. <laughs> <laughs> and the music blogs have gone down quite a lot, in my opinion. Like I used to religiously look at the top 50, 20, 40 tracks on Hype Machine. I've not looked at Hype right. Machine in the last five years. Do you know what? I've only heard of that through friends. I've never actually university heard of it. when I was in university it was massive Hype Machine. Like any track that got big on Hype Machine, like everyone in university knew it. It was getting played in the clubs. Uh, I remember Indie Shuffle used to be a really big blog that I use. I barely I use Indie it Shuffle, now. Yeah, yeah. Indie Current used to be a really big blog that I used to check out and see what was going on. Again, barely use it now. So I think because of streaming and the way that the music industry has just moved, I think the blogs are really struggling to get any sort of traction now. Yeah. That's just my opinion. But. I mean, from the circle, from the music circles, I mean, I know... When you have when you have a release, it's Spotify playlist, isn't it? It's yeah. Spotify playlist, and because I mean that's, I was I was chatting to someone yesterday about this. The algorithms on Spotify know me so well, and I just know that if I chuck a new single on that I'll, I'm into, I know that it will give me a couple of hours of really good music that I'm more often not really like. Mm. So I'm like, it's doing it for me. I'm not as active in going yes. out to find it because the algorithms have got so good yep. at knowing you. So I think that's probably why people don't go to blogs as much. Yeah. And I think you get a lot of that in the hip hop scene, especially when albums are 15 track, 18 track, 25 track. And I say to my mates, I ain't buying an album unless 15 of these 18 tracks are hits. Mm. Because what happens is, is that you'll get like three or four that are hits, mm. but that'll be good enough for an artist because the kids or whoever their fans are will just take the three, four tracks and put it into their playlist. And they'll go and we go to live shows to see those hits. Yes. Right. You don't necessarily go for all 15 tracks. Yeah. You'll go for like, oh, like the three or four yep. super hits. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could argue that with Drake because, you know, his last four to five albums. I mean, I think I think the last great album he did was probably Take Care. Not Take Care, sorry. Um, the oh, the experimental one he did that had like passion fruit on it for me that was the housey last... one yeah 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 no no the housey one was his last one right but the housey one for this last one had like two or three great tracks on it mm. but like he probably doesn't care mm. because people will go and see those three great tracks he'll play at the gig mm. and he'll play certified lover boy he'll play two or three tracks from that and he'll play two or three tracks from if you're reading this is it's too late da, mm. da, 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 da. so yeah I think when you got to that level of fame, you could almost put out anything. Yeah, you could. <laughs> you could put out a techno album, people wouldn't care. Yeah, do whatever, yeah. Let's reflect on your music journey now, then, Mick. Mm. So, what has being in Rayowa, Beecher Tiger, and this wider music journey taught you about yourself, and how have those experiences compared in growing you as a musician and a person? The art of compromise. Tell so me more. From a very young age, writing music collectively with four to nine people it's about learning your place in that team 
and not trying to make it all about you. And you've got to serve the song at all times, not serve you. You can't be, tr be trying to pull off stuff just to make yourself look good. You've got to be serving the song and serving us him as your teammates. That's, I'd say, the main lesson that I've taken from music, yeah. We've talked all about your music journey. Let's go behind the mic and talk about your own mental health journey, Mick. Mm -hmm. So I ask all my special guests this question first. Walk me through early life in Essex, childhood, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Mick we meet here? Going through early life, well, I guess born in Grays, which was a grey place, but I was only two when I left it. Dad works up the city, and my mum, she works up the city as well, but then she obviously became a stay-at-home mum to look after me, and then my brother came two, like, yeah, two years after me. When I was two, potentially like three, we moved to Billericay, and then... Billericay, for those who don't know, it's a, nowadays it's a commuter town, halfway between, more or less halfway between London and South End. And that's the place I grew up in. It's very much... Leafy. Very leafy. It's a commuter town, but there, it's, it's really split in terms of how it's made up. There's a lot of wealth there because a lot of people worked up in the city, Canary Wharf, whatever. Very easy train connection. And then there's the other side of Billericay, which is loads and loads of council estates. It's mm. really, really, really split. And yeah, it's an it's a interesting town. We had a really nice time in school, like we touched on earlier. Sport and music was wonderful in school. Tried to do well, studying-wise. And yeah, had good friends around me in school. And then that was me in school. Okay. Yeah. Like your brother said on his podcast, mate, you've also experienced some health anxiety mm, when yeah. you were younger. So how did that manifest and, and what impact did it have on your mental health? Okay, first thing like that, I remember when I was really young, just being terrified of dying. <laughs> I don't know if, yeah, I, I remember how old, oh, I can't tell you how old I was, maybe around anywhere from the eight to 10 ball mm. area around then. Just, I remember laying in bed at night thinking, oh my God, I'm going to die. <laughs> I was like, everyone's going to die. Oh my, that's men. What, what, can we stop it? How are we going to do that? What was, no. And then obviously at that age, I'd be like, Mom, we were gonna die, and like I just couldn't. There was a few weeks where I just couldn't believe it, and I was like, "Well, what, what's the point? What, what are we doing?" Uh, man. <laughs> some, some existential questions <laughs> yeah. here, mate. I don't know what made me think that. I was just like, "Right, well, we're all gonna die." So it wasn't really what's the point. I was just terrified. I was like, I remember thinking that I was looking at death, and I was trying to think of how I was gonna die. So <laughs> that was probably quite intense for a, however old I was, kid mm. to uh, to go through. Yeah. You also experienced symptoms that would be related or classified as OCD, but you're not diagnosed with OCD, if I'm right in saying. So how did this manifest? Yeah, I, I used to do funny things. Like the light switch one was a classic. That's quite mm -hmm. a famous one. I used to do this really, well, I think it's a unique thing. When I, when I drank, I used to have to drink water or any drink in a certain way where I'd drink it. In my head, I'd count really fast from zero to six. Because that was, that was my favourite number when I was a kid. <laughs> and then Normally I'd, it's seven. Everyone goes, count. It's even number one to ten. Seven. Yeah, yeah. I'd say in my head, I'd be like, one, two, three, four, six. I mean, six, I mean, six five, four, two, three, two, one. I'd count back down and then go up to ten, down, and then six, and down zero again. And I could not drink without doing that. Don't know why. That was just a, an obsessive thing that mm -hmm. I did. And I think the way that that's continued through my life, I, I'm obsessive. I really, whenever I've had arguments with people, I really need to know that it's okay. 
and I always need the closure. Need the I, I love a bit of closure, mate. Oh my mm. god, um, delicious, I, delicious closure yeah. for my man for our anxiety. Yeah, is yeah the but best. <laughs> I mean, I'm no psychoanalyst, but for some reason, I see that how I used to drink as a this desire for closure is a continuation of that. Right. I don't know what issue I had with liquid, but uh, okay. I just needed closure with liquid <laughs> all the time. And then yeah, I guess linking it to the health anxiety stuff, I think. I just used to every t- not it wasn't like I'd get the flu and go oh my god I'm gonna die, I just I don't know I'd have like a mark or a I don't know feel a bit weird or a pain somewhere and be like oh my god it's cancer mm. I'm gonna die and yeah I just jumped to worst situation and then that that used to just take over. When did that but stop? Or when did that become better to manage? When did it come? When did it stop? I think probably after going to the doctor a few times and then going, you're fine. Need <laughs> <laughs> the closure. To, to yeah. put it bluntly, that was that was it. And yeah, I think mm. yeah, just being more at ease with life. I think mm. when you're a teenager, you know, very hormonal, a lot of things going on, and it's more unsettling. Whereas maybe now I've just you zen s- settled. Well, try mm. to be yeah, settled mm. into life a bit more. You spoke there about your brother and mm. I want to talk about family a little bit here because you're the older sibling mm-hmm. and you said to me off air that you felt perhaps some extra pressure or expectations placed on you was that pressure internalized did you feel it internal to you or was it externally placed upon you or both I'd imagine a bit of both I'd imagine maybe I'd see some external pressure and then I'd probably amplify that up myself I think being the older one I saw I don't think this is a common thing with older siblings. I think a lot of, I there was a, I saw growing up. I think if my mum heard this now, she would absolutely disagree. But <laughs> <laughs> I think I saw different expectations put on me than on my other siblings. Mm-hmm. I think they expected a lot of me. I think there was a, there was that element of well as well of my younger siblings were allowed to do stuff before me. Mm-hmm. So I, when I was younger, now I probably had some resentment about it. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, why could they do this? Well, I yeah, can yeah, do yeah. it at that age or whatever. Classic. Because yeah. I was the guinea pig. And I think maybe because I was the guinea pig, I saw extra expectations. And I think... My brother says exactly the same Really? Thing. What are you? Are you the... I'm one of four. So I'm third of four. Third of four. And he's yeah. the eldest. So yeah. So solidarity with your guinea pig <laughs> brother. Yeah, I think... What was it? Yeah, I just think that, yeah, like I said, the expectation was different. And I think emotionally as well, I think the way I saw it is that my mum and dad normally just assumed... That I was fine. Maybe because, I mean, generally speaking, I think I'm fine. Everything. So you gave off that nice, natural. I gave off. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I mean, maybe like you indicated, I maybe give off a calmness, mm-hmm. which is good to know. And then maybe I didn't vocalise stuff as much as maybe my siblings did with my mm. parents. So maybe that's something I've I've tried to take away from that. Mm. Yeah. Has it lessened as you've gotten older? Um. What has what the the pressure that you felt back then has it gone now? Or do you feel it at all still? <laughs> Every now and then, I think my interactions with, because I see my dad quite a lot because we go to football. So we have a di- I have a different relationship with him. With my mum, I think in her head, she's happy because she knows that I'm fine. And I think she's just a shit. Maybe if stuff is up, maybe I need to talk. Maybe this is me realising that I need to talk to my mum. Well, there you go, mate. <laughs> maybe I should This be- pod has many purposes. Yeah, yeah. yeah definitely waned off a little bit, I think, mm-hmm. yeah. You spoke about your dad there, and I want to talk about your relationship because you and your dad have quite a similar relationship that me and my dad have when it comes to football nice. and how it's been that vehicle for bonding time mm. for us. So just tell me about the relationship your dad, because 
your dad's also had some health scares. My dad's had a few health scares. So just tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, too. I think it was a similar health scare. Yeah, 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 yeah I think so. And, yeah. yeah, my dad had an angina. So my dad had a minor heart attack a few years ago and he had a very serious stroke coming up to eight years ago. How's he yeah. doing? How's he doing? He's good now. He's nice. very good okay, now. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same with that. He's doing good. He's, he's like exercises like two, three times a week. Like really, really. If it was a massive wake up call for him. Mm. And I think that was a health scare as well because that was, I can't remember how many years ago it was. That was a massive thing because I was like, okay, my dad's had this thing. Just, you think your dad's mortal. That's what was quite a big thing for me. Like yeah. your dad's not invincible. Yeah. yeah. And I think like, like, well, I'm made out of him. So I've probably got, <laughs> I've probably got the same stuff going on here. So that could happen to me. Mm. So that around the time, I didn't want to say it to him because obviously he's just doing the stuff. But I remember in my head being like, fuck, like, mm. what will that happen to me when I'm like around that age? So your dad is human, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so I think I try to take care of myself these days. Mm-hmm. And yeah, really good relationship with my dad. I think, yeah, football, I think, do you know what? I talk about this with friends who's who aren't footbally mm-hmm. friends and whose dads aren't into it. And quite a few of them have said that they find it quite hard because they don't have they say that they almost they wish that they liked football in that sense because mm. it would be a means to hang out with their dad which is what it is when we're adults now when you're kids it's like the football's the thing whereas now it's like my dad's yeah exactly I'll go the football helps the football helps shit at the moment so it doesn't help at the moment I mean, yeah. it does help that Arsenal are top of the yeah. league it, it, do- does, it doesn't help that Arsenal are still the bottom of the championship <laughs> yeah, oh, no. yeah. I think we're going to have a bottom yeah, yeah we're bottom now yeah yeah at time recording yeah. uh, at time recording yeah. uh, hopefully not when this is out <laughs> <laughs> it's just we go sort of once a week once a fortnight like, sometimes we get to go twice a week and it's we'll go for dinner beforehand mm. and we hang out. We talk, I talk to him. Oh, how's mum? How's mm. life going? And it's the ease in. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. it's just such an. And we get to spend the whole evening or whole mm. afternoon together, and it's just so fun. It's like I now see it as being with an older friend, mm. really. So it's been really instrumental in our relationship. Mm. Yeah. One lovely thing you said to me about your Arsenal games is when you meet up as men, and you said that he said to you, or sorry, you said, "I can see that he's proud of me." How does that feel when you hear that? Yeah, because I think because he just comes and sees his, meets up with his son and he sees that, I mean, at least I try, I'm trying to be, that <laughs> I'm on my own two feet, doing all my own stuff. And I think we get on a level about it and mm. then like, you know, completely independent. And it's like, we, we just go and hang out at these, at these games together. And mm. it's just lovely. It's like an unspoken bond, would you say? Yeah, yeah. like he's definitely got more, he reveals his emotions more my dad's my dad after the stroke he cries everything now oh does he yeah, yeah, yeah. he cried once when Leicester won the FA Cup and I said dad it's not even your team <laughs> was that uh, no. was that when Leicester yeah when, when, when T- they won the Tillman league, scored you yeah, no no when they won the FA Cup we were watching it together and now he because of I've understood this now when people who have in stroke recovery he's in like the top 1% of people who have recovered and it changes your cognitive uh I don't know what the right word is, but it opens up your brain to be more emotional. Oh, wow. So my dad was never emotional. He didn't cry at any of our births and all that. My dad and my mum always, always jokes and now he cries everything. Like, so he didn't so cry really when you great. were born, but he cried when Leicester won the Yeah, and he cried when Huddersfield won promotion to the Premier League very heavily like I did. So yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, that's, Amazing. I've lost my child of thought then. I'll get my shit myself. <laughs> I was thinking about, I was just thinking about an older man crying at Huddersfield. I was like, because well, one of my best friends is a lifelong Huddersfield fan. So I, was... I probably know him. <laughs> <laughs> All 12 of us. Yeah, yeah. yeah literally eight. Yeah, this, this yeah. yeah, so the, I guess the question I was going to get back to is that are you having more or different conversations because of that time together 
than you were when you were kids? Are you both just in a state where you don't have to have those conversations? What What is the state like now? I think cause growing up, he used to work long days mm. and he was really... I remember there was a time in my teenage years where he was so he would stuff was so stressful and he was stressed all the time working fourteen hour days and I barely got to see him. So my first football team he was my coach at the weekends as well. Okay. So he'd work from he'd be up at five Monday to Friday back at like six thirty seven, and then Saturday morning he'd get up and train. Then Sunday game that is a lot. That's heavy. Yeah. That's yeah. a lot. But he loved football. He loved doing it. And I wouldn't have been the football player I was if it wasn't for him. And I know he absolutely loved. Doing it. I think he'd be a great coach now if he went. I th- I'd say to him that he should go back and do it. Yeah, but I think now because he's retired now, he's in his mid sixties now, and we just get to go and hang out, and he just talks to me like he's, he's such a well-read guy, and we just talk about. So you get it from? Yeah, I probably like, yeah yeah yeah. And stuff like that. Mum, yeah. you need to read more. Um, <laughs> she really does, and he, he's no, he's such a well-read guy, and so because I work in politics now, and he loves talking about politics, and we talk about all the issues and stuff and it's just a really good sounding board for things so mm. yeah it's lovely yeah you mentioned there about the fact that you know your dad's health issues made you consider things about your own health so has mm. it made you do things differently like and not just health wise but just your attitude towards life yeah i think uh, i try and basically try not to drink during the week really that, yeah, that was same. my main thing but then that's also i'm, I'm very aware my girlfriend's french and i'm realized that that's a very <laughs> That's antithetical. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a very British thing for me to say. Like, I'll I'll just drink at the weekend because it turns into like eight nine pints or whatever. Or I could just have a glass of red or two like every other day. But it's just that's that's something that made me uh, mm. get healthier. And I did a few half marathons and stuff as well to try and get healthier. But now I I, I want to have knees when I hit sixty, so I'm I'm not doing that anymore. <laughs> I want to move on to something that we were quite keen to both talk about, which is mm. the idea of identity politics or identity issues becoming intertwined with mental health itself Mm. and the danger of our mental health trauma or our mental health issues or just our mental health itself becoming our identity Mm. and one example i normally give is how some people online will put their like mental health diagnosis in their bio it's never something that i've agreed with or or want to do and you said to me no you wouldn't put your physical conditions in your bio so Mm. why would you put your mental health conditions just tell me about your perspective on this and where do you think we're going in society if this tends to get worse, not better? Yeah, I mean, I think maybe it's in this big, mad world we live in. We like to try and put labels on ourselves and we like to try and have markers mm. to... We're putting more labels on ourselves. What are we doing? Yeah, I, I know. It's a lot of... It's like when... It's like, I think when I see a... When you compare... I like comparing it to... So if you go to like a, a farmer's market and you just get the organic produce or you go to a supermarket, how many like labels on mm. a thing, right? So there's a lot of holes in that analogy, but it's just... <laughs> so, so it works important. for now. Yeah. yeah, it works. So we're going to roll yeah. with it. So what I think that conversation, when we spoke about that off, off the mic, that came off of, I've got a few friends that are going, oh, I'm self-diagnosing myself with this. I'm self-diagnosing myself with that. And I'm, mm. I just don't know. Maybe for some people it's helpful, but I don't... In these cases, I don't see it being helpful to them. Mm. But they, they don't go and see a, a GP or a yeah, mental health professional. That's what it should lead to. Yes, yeah, so I think they should know for sure. Yeah, because yeah, I mean, these they went, you know, the mental health professionals. They went to, they've got qualifications in this. Uh, you know, they know this probably mm. a little bit better than you. And I just think go to. The, I don't know if it's because there's a lack of capacity on the NHS. Yeah, there's waiting list for diagnosis. Sure, there's there's that to take into consideration. Right. But if you can get it. Please just, do. Yeah, just yeah. go here yeah, because I just hear maybe it's friends who are a few years younger than me as well, like in the earlier twenties, are doing it a bit more. They're just 
saying, oh yeah, I've self-diagnosed myself with this. I'm, I'm just, I just don't know how, in the grand scheme of things, I don't know if that is the right mm. thing to do. Because we all have little bits and pieces. You know, I have things that someone can say, oh Fred, that's a little bit autistic because I'm like, oh, that's a little bit weird, that thing I do. But I'm not, I'm not on the spectrum. It's like, I wouldn't say I'm autistic because I do X, Y, and Z or I'm not ADHD because I do little things that, you know, I'm on a minor scale. But we need to take ownership of our mental health don't we we need yeah. to like be comfortable in ourselves and maybe that maybe that self-diagnosing thing is part of that taking ownership mm. but also uh, yeah i just think that let's say if you have a little obsessive thing like everyone has a little thing that they really are you know they want every, a certain thing to happen in a certain way is that obsessive or is that just how we are your, your mind works that's yeah, how yeah. just we are about like someone might be really obsessive about CDs, like I'm, <laughs> like I can see this. I'm not, but that is a quite a collection of CDs you got here, which is wicked. But some people might go, oh, that's obsessive. It's like no, it's just mm. I love them. Mm. I love having it like that. So someone might be, I really love being. I need to be on time and stuff. That's me. I love it. I have to be on time for everything. And I'd say so. I'd say that's a mark of respect, mm. and I think it's an admirable. Shows you as a person, I think. As yeah. Well. Also, because rushing biggest anxiety trigger. Also, I hate rushing. It's rushing just, for a train. Oh my oh, god, it's the worst. It, I'd rather get there and wait for like. 20 minutes. Oh, yeah. Podcast, I was about to some tunes. I'm there. I was about to say three, four minutes. <laughs> so there we go. Oh, you're obsessive, Freddy. Come on, chill, chill out, mate. <laughs> it's just because rushing, I hate it. Yeah. I'm carrying a bag. I'm sweating. I need to know where the platform is. If I don't know where the platform is, and then when I start having an anxiety attack, my brain nah, goes yeah. out the window. Decision making goes out the window. No, nah, I'm not on it. So I, you might really, I do this thing where my alarm clock in my room is like five minutes ahead of the mm-hmm. actual time. So my alarm goes off five minutes earlier. Nice. But it actually needs... Love that. I feel like you'd get on board yeah, with that. Yeah, I love that. I love that. <laughs> Even love though that. I was five minutes late today. <laughs> <laughs> five minutes late is five, mate. It's not the worst. It's not the worst. Yeah. When we're in our early 20s, mate, we mm. have all these grand ideas of how our life will go, what we want to achieve, what we want to do in our careers. Mm. We're both around the same age, and this is something that you wanted to talk about because we're both near to turning 30. I'm 29 in April, next April. Mm. How do you reflect on where you are in life now and, and where you were and who you were when you started doing music at 16? I think when I was 16, I was like, I need to be touring the world by 23, 24. Let's go. But then I think the way the music market's gone, it's a lot more saturated and there's a lot more people doing a lot of things. Like we said earlier about it's been democratised a bit. So obviously there's a lot more players. But the privilege is still there. The, yeah, privilege. Get the connections when you have people in the music industry. It's like I can tell straight away, oh, that person's got that high up that quickly because their uncle's somewhere there or their mum's somewhere there. And obviously they have to have the talent. Don't get me wrong. They're probably very talented people and they, they definitely are very talented. Mm-hmm. But it's the door. It's yeah. the door is open and they're good enough to go through it. Yeah, a I lot think, of other people don't have the door. Yeah, I, I assume like Droz, Pete, and would have said the same. I assume Dan and the rest of Rayoa will say the same as well. Like we don't have any, we, we don't know anyone. No, well, no, well I didn't know no, anyone no. for the industry. You know so I mean? sorry. So. Well, I mean, we do now, luckily. Yeah. But growing up, didn't know anyone. No. Like, we, we didn't have a link to anyone, so we just did it because we loved doing it and we wanted to do it. It's all we wanted to do. And I think now, do you know what, the summer we've just had with Rayoa, it was amazing. We did festivals around the UK. It was so much fun. And that, for me, is that's a mark of success. For us, it's just because we've always dreamt of doing it and it was the first time we've all done it. And we've all been at this for, yeah, what, like 14 odd mm. years around that, maybe longer for some of us. 
And yeah, that for me, that's success. And I, some of the shows we've done, I finally look back and go, do you know what I've done? Oh, I remember doing that show that I've, oh, I did this show. And it's stuff that I'd reflect on and go, oh yeah, there's, there was a music, mm. like, a music career has happened. Mm. And I think when I was, like you said, when we were younger, I'm more like, not that I'm less hungry now, but I more understand how- Got more perspective. Were, yeah, 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 more perspective and just actually have experienced it mm. and you know how it works. Well, the best compliment I can give about every show that I've been to of yours is that, everyone feels like a moment like wow. it yeah. feels like when you're there and everyone is enjoying it and everyone is boogieing and that's the only way i can describe it it feels like a moment well wow, that's well, really amazing to know on so there's yeah i mean i couldn't put it better than that there's there's moments where we're looking around say like reese for speaking about Rower, reese will turn around because reese is like the main he's like the Nile rogers of the situation mm. he, he's always the best dressed oh mate <laughs> the he... garms he was having he had on at that London Bridge I went to him I was like bruv you've got some serious garms on yeah yeah the like, big hat <laughs> the, the hat Pharrell the hats. silk shirt oh, oh. Yeah. I thought it was, was going to go into signs by Justin Timberlake <laughs> oh, mate, mate. that's an idea for a couple let's do it he's, so he's the principal songwriter and he, he's the one that brings everyone in so when he turns around during a set and he looks he'll make eye contact with you and you know he's smiling he's happy with it and you just know and that we have that moment and that's what all those hours and evenings of rehearsals is for just having that moment we look around on stage and we just give each other a look like this is going this is wonderful this is amazing the equivalent of being in the music zone this is in, in sport it's the music zone yeah just being yeah. in the zone like you know exactly. no words said nothing yeah, you just know yeah and yeah basically it's it feels like a moment I think you put it perfectly mm. yeah Another part of life you wanted to discuss briefly was relationships, mate, and how they've made you into the person you are today. So unpack this part of your life for mm. me. Well, yeah, I mean, okay. I just, uh, yeah, I wouldn't be the person I am today if I hadn't had the heartbreak and having madly fallen in love. I was actually speaking with some recently who went through a breakup and they were saying how it was a wonderful mutual breakup they were both on the same page and it was, in a way it was sadder than mm. a big angry breakup because I've had all I, I've I've been broken up with a few times I've broken up with people a few times mm. and only once have I, I've had that with a wonderful person we were dating for a while and we just both went we just both knew that it wasn't working and it was almost a disbelief that it was so calm and it was a, a real empty sadness about mm. it. It was, it was just we both knew that it wasn't working out. And I think the fact that there was no emotion made you more emotional. Yeah, it was, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, it was just we 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 both had a chat. And we, we st- when we see each other, like we see each other, we bump into each other like, like once a year or probably or something like that. And it's just really nice. It's like catch up with an old friend. It's really mm. nice. And yeah, it just it makes you think about you know, thinking about someone ahead of you most of the time, pretty much all the time. And I think it's, it's that degree of sacrifice probably sounds dramatic, but knowing that you'd do pretty much anything for that person, I think really helps puts things into perspective. And, you know, yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess with the person I'm with now, we want to build a life for that person. I'm not saying we're both actually sort of not on the marriage vibe, but just knowing you, you want to, you see a future with someone mm. and the idea of growing older with someone is wonderful. And yeah, I could talk for probably hours about how it's made. Well, you've got the boyfriend points now, so we'll move move on. Yeah, I hope you're listening. (laughs) (laughs) The biggest thing that shocked me when we spoke off air, Mick, that you've gone through, and it's our final subject before we talk about mental health chat. It's Mm. our quick fire section. Is two near death experiences that you've had. Yeah. Now, the first one you went through was in Kathmandu, and the second one you went through was Nepal in 2015 when an earthquake struck. 
and you almost essentially tell me you, you died. Just tell me about both of these experiences. So both of those, it was, so Kathmandu is the capital of Nepal and it, there was two earthquakes within. So it was the same country, but two, two yeah, 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 things. That's yeah, right, yeah. yeah. I felt a bit of like a anorak. Like, actually, it was, like, <laughs> it was actually the capital of Nepal. My notes have let me down. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. But yeah, so there was two earthquakes within the space of a day in Kathmandu. So, and for all I was dead. I'd accepted death, basically. And maybe that's part of what's made me calm since. Because, so basically, me and a very good friend, this is when I'd, uh, I'd graduated, saved up some money working at Spoons for a while, uh, living at home, so wasn't paying rent, able to save up some money. We wanted to travel the world. So we went to Nepal, first of all, stayed there for a night. And when we got back to the hostel, we had our own room, went to sleep or whatever. Then in the morning, I actually remember, because we had a few beers and that, I actually remember I woke up at like six in the morning to like throw up a little bit in the, in the toilet. Because a few too many of the nice beers there. And went back to sleep and woken up by a shaking. So my initial thought was that like soldiers or something were coming up the stairs because there was a rumbling. There was a rumbling and a shaking. I was like, okay, there's a lot of people here. But then a second later, I opened my eyes and the building is just swaying from side to side. And there's a building, we're on the third floor. The building next to us is smashing into the side of the building. And... Both of us just got up. I'm a naked sleeper. We're both naked. And we just jump in between these two single beds and just hugged each other, just staring at the ceiling, like waiting to die. I was like, this is it. There's no way out of here. You couldn't get up and try and walk away because it was so unstable. And buildings smashing like you'd hear, what, maybe some windows smashing as well on the building as well, just waiting for the roof to fall down. This probably lasted, fucking sorry, maybe 20 seconds, 30 seconds. How long did it feel in your head? Oh, a while. Yeah. But I'm trying to... It was probably around 20 to 30 seconds, I guess, but I couldn't really tell you. But it just stopped. And I was like, whoa. Okay. There was... A, we're not dead. We literally, like, touched each other, like... Like in the films, when someone wakes up and, like, something's... Yeah, we were like, like... Am I dead? Literally, like... There was a bit... I remember Peaky Blinders where they would talk about there's... What was it? Polly puts her head through the noose. It felt like your head was through the noose and you're like right this is it and we ended up getting away staying in the courtyard for a while and then stayed out in the garden at the embassy and then with the uh, who is it with the Gurkhas was it the Gurkhas what's the there's an army yeah yeah yeah, yeah, the, yeah, ones yeah, are, yeah, yeah. The, the whole there was a big big PR campaign to get them accredited for the World that's War II it stuff. yeah, yeah, yeah. Stay, with the, stay with the Gurkhas and camp there for a while and as long as we were outside it was safe there was a lot of tremors after and there was a second earthquake the next day like the earth, the airport was ripped up you couldn't get a flight out for like a week so that's why we stayed with the Gurkhas and the main thing I took from it was that it was basically staring death in the face it was death was here and I guess I was curious to know what I'd be like in that situation it was just I didn't think anything if any it was quite zen like it was like right it's here this time there's nothing you can do about it and then it didn't come I was like oh he's going to get some water now <laughs> were you surprised you felt like that I think maybe it's say if it was an other near-death experience like someone was trying to kill me or something there'd be more of a struggle I think because in that situation the struggle wouldn't have helped mm. so I was like what am I going to do here? I it's can't. like you're fighting a tiger or something it's not like you have control over like I was like yeah. just right, this is it and I was just ready to be crushed and ready for it to whatever happened I didn't know what was going to happen what were those was. days and weeks like afterwards were you in a sort of trance were you trying to 
come down from this adrenaline rush that you had gone through? What was and and what did you learn from it? If you know, anything, it was really weird because so the first place we could get a flight out to was where was it? Kuala Lumpur, Kuala Lumpur. I can't say it right. The capital of Malaysia. It was like the cheapest place we could get a flight out to, and we flew out to there and we arrived in the airport, and it was this hyper like capitalist big huge mental more like something like mega like, mega like judge dread sort of city sort of thing yeah yeah and got there i remember me and my friend who was i was traveling with we just felt numb we were like we've just left somewhere where thousands scores and scores like of people have just died and it's just really weird just going here and everyone's just like shopping we like hadn't showered for a week dear god uh yeah i know and we got to a hotel and the first shower there it was I've never not showered for that long in my life because uh, there was just no water where we were yeah. we were only allowed to drink it and it was just I was like the rest it just felt so dislocated probably guilty because we were like we've been able to just leave that and then a whole country have just been left in rubble mm. and so there was a weird that's jarring isn't week it? or so just yeah. feeling numb just being in another city where everything was fine where we were just like this is really mm. strange. Yeah, that was weird. Let's reflect on your mental health journey now. So mm. A, what has it taught you about yourself? And B, if you could go back and talk to that teenage Mick who was feeling a bit anxious about his health, the Mick who was frustrated about having to do an academic degree instead of music, the Mick who was getting anxious at not hitting his life goals in his mid-twenties, or the mm. Mick, as you said, waiting for death in Kathmandu, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? I'd say to him, in, to all those things, I'd say don't react or speak straight away. Sometimes take a moment before you say something. <laughs> That's why I got a lot in childhood. <laughs> think before you speak, Freddie. Think before yeah, you speak. Really, yeah, yeah. really. Try, just take a, take a, literally just take a breath first and really think. So even if you really disagree with someone, just try and understand where they're coming from first. Mm. And don't jump to a conclusion straight away. Don't assume that you're right. Really just try and understand where other people are coming from. We've all got different issues and problems in life. Just take a breath first and go from there. Our final topic of conversation, Mick, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests if we have time. It is a general natter and chat about our mental health. So mm-hmm. firstly, how is your mental health? Yeah, pretty good. Yeah. Excellent. I prefer that, you know, it's a bit grey outside. Yeah, prefer the summer, which sounds a bit basic. Yeah, it's good, man. Yeah, I really, I, I meditate quite a lot. Uh, I think because quite a demanding job and do quite a lot of different things in mm-hmm. life. And sometimes when it gets too much, I just try and try Send and find to yourself. Yeah, exactly. Try and take moments to myself. Yeah, but overall, yeah, excellent, mate. Yeah. What age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health for the first time, and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? Probably. Do you know what? Probably when I was about 12, 13, I used to be really insecure about this mole I had. Mm-hmm. And I realised it was just in my head. Wow. Yeah, that, there you go. What things do you find in life that trigger your mental health? So it could be things people say to you. It could be a sound, a sensation, a particular social environment, a particular TV show. Or have you not figured all of them out yet? I can, I'm not sure, really. I think... I'm not a variety, a variety of things. I, I couldn't pinpoint just one. 
Sorry. Okay, no worries. Yeah. And then conversely, what positive tools or methods do you use to improve your mental health? So you mentioned meditation there. Are there any other ones that have worked for you? Are there any others that you've tried but haven't? I'll go for long walks by myself. That really helps. Stuff. Actually, you know what? No, going back to the other question, what trigger stuff is, say if I have an argument with someone close to me, mm-hmm. I, it really gets to me. Me and my mum get on really well, but we have really big arguments sometimes. Firing. Yeah, they're yeah. really fiery and they really get to me and I think, oh, am I being a bad son? Why am I upsetting my mum? Stuff like that. That really gets to me. Me and my brother actually have some fiery arguments as well sometimes. <laughs> he probably alluded to that as well. And yeah, and when I think I've let someone down, actually, that really mm. makes me... And I, I'll, I'll take myself on a long walk or just try and... I've got this wonderful little meditation mm-hmm. cushion that I sit on to try and set myself in that or just go for a coffee by myself just by myself really oh I've, I've got this guy guy, my friend in my life guy called James who's my absolute rock been my rock for like almost 20 years so just talk to him about anything so. lovely stuff mate can you tell me about the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health so who was it with what did you say and what impact did it have did it feel like a big burden or weight even lift off your shoulders on one hand on the other did it feel like something very easy insignificant and normal to do <sighs> I think it would be speaking to my friend James about stuff. Oh, I can't remember. I couldn't tell you what he was talking about. But whenever I talk to him, it feels like letting a burden off. Mm. And I think vice versa him as well. He comes to me with stuff. And yeah, it's it's a release because you know you're, because you work stuff up in your head and you're like, okay, actually what I'm all worried about, what I'm working myself up over. You practically examine it and you work it out. Yeah, yeah and yeah. you go, and it's a sounding board and you go, look, mm. I'm talking to someone that I trust who's going to be honest with me about whatever it is. And you're like, okay, it's fine. Mm. It's cool. I'm just working all these scenarios up in my head. It's fine. And look, I worry about it and everything's still fine. Yeah. There's a famous Jordan Peterson quote in his first book that says, an idea is a personality, not a fact. And that's what I tend to tell people. Okay. And they have like thoughts that are a bit intrusive. Yeah. I refer to myself when I have that. Well, okay. I'm going to take that away. If there was a mantra that summed up your mental health in life, what would it be and why? If I had a mantra... Well, what's your thought about this? Um, if I had a mantra, I think just take a breath first. Love it. Going. Yeah, take a breath first, yeah. What is the best book, or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? Now, it can be mental health or self-help related, but it doesn't exclusively have to be. And if it's not a book, then a play, TV show, podcast, etc. I think... Novels. I haven't really, to, uh, to be honest, I would, I haven't really, I couldn't say I've read a self-help book mm-hmm. before. For me, novels do that. Yeah. I'd say anything written by James Baldwin, Giovanni's Room and Another Country, they're so sad but uplifting at the same time and he understands how hard life can be and he just gets humanity mm-hmm. and he gets all different, so many different views of humanity as well. And I take so many lessons from what he writes. Excellent. And as a final question, what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if, most importantly, they want to do it? I think the biggest obstacle to men having better mental health is when groups of men are together being knobs. (laughs) It's just stop trying to be the big man because you're not more often than not none of you are the big man and just have groups and others because what I hear is men going one on one with friends with Ryo actually we have a really good 
setup where we talk together about things. That's that's really cool. With Beach as well, but I particularly noticed it in Rayoa. But it's just when groups of guys are together, it's cutting the match on us. Whatever, have a laugh as well, of course. I'm not saying that. Goes down as we get older, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. And just be up for talking about stuff together. And don't try and one-up each other because mm. it's stupid. And on that note, Mick from Beach for Tiger, Mick from Rayoa, thank you so much for coming on behind the mic and checking in with me, mate. Mate, thanks for having me, Freddie. Thanks, man. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of Behind the Mic. I want to say a big thank you to Mick from Beach for Tiger for being my special guest on this episode and for letting me go behind the mic with him. Beach for Tiger's new single, Craving, will play us out and I'll put all of Beach for Tiger's streaming and social media links in the show notes as well as Rayoa's and where you can listen to part one with Pete as well. As always, thank you to, to all the vendors who've tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. Just give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can support us at our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. You can also make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe if you don't want to do that, or you can buy a Vent t-shirt. That link is on our link tree, which is across all of our channels. Stay tuned for the next episode of Behind the Mic. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. Vent.